Father, you are so good to us. And now as we wait for you, we trust you. By your spirit, will give us understanding. Give us application. Give us a, a greater appreciation for your word now than ever before. Help us to cling to it. Because through your word, you tell us about who you are, who we are, and how we are to operate in your world. So quicken us, quicken our wills, inform our minds, uh, inflame our emotions and our passions for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul found himself in prison again. This time it was death row, the Mamertine prison in Rome. All who went there never left alive. And so there, Paul took a pen, parchment, and he wrote a letter to his mentee, Timothy. He wanted to pass on to Timothy some very important things, things that were extremely important to him. In what was probably the last letter that he would ever write, Paul communicated to Timothy the origin and the importance of Holy Scripture. Now, what that was was the Old Testament. Listen again to these famous words found in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, at this point in time, the only scripture that was officially recognized by the church as God's word was indeed the Old Testament. And today we're going to explore in the Old Testament things that may seem to be quite bizarre to us. And the five things we're going to talk about today is in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 23. And so Deuteronomy 21, 1 to 23, uh, turn there in your Bibles. Again, we're going to talk about five things that pertain to life and the family and authority. Five things that are couched in little scenarios that make our 21st century ears and hearts go, hmm. See, Paul understood the importance of Torah. He knew this was his very life. And he placed Holy Scripture at the center of his life and ordered his entire world around it. He knew and lived out the truth that knowing Scripture was not an end in itself, but it was a means to an end that the man, the woman, the young person would be equipped to do good works. In other words, the word of God was given to the people of God to do the work of God. It was not given to the pagans. You knew that, right? God's word was given to God's people from Genesis to Revelation. All of scripture was given to the people of God to do good works and therefore demonstrate to the watching world that we are part of God's family. And what this will mean for us is that we will need to unpack these scenarios, these things that will make us go, hmm, one scenario at a time, to mine them for the truth and then to apply the truth to our lives in our day. And as it's been said, the Bible was not given to us to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And by the power of the Spirit, as we understand and obey the Lord because we love him, our lives will be changed to his glory. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take each little scenario. I'm going to explain them, and then we're going to discover an application or two, and then move on to the next one. So it's going to be kind of quick, so you got to keep up, all right? And again, if you have a manuscript, you can study it at home as well. Now, all these modules serve to help us understand one 
main thing, the greatness, the superiority of God's ways as Moses teaches Torah. Because the word Torah means teaching, as in teaching God's ways. And so the first short scenario is Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. And so again, if you have your Bible out, Deuteronomy 21, 1 to 9, where Moses teaches the people about how important human life is. And through, of all things, through the death of an innocent man. So let's call this little scenario the case of the dead man and the heifer. So let's follow along as I read. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed them or killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, has never been pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify this. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Strange story indeed, would you think? Not so much in the fact that a man is dead in the middle of nowhere and no one knows how or why he was killed. And literally the word here in the original is pierced. So we know something happened, somebody killed this guy. But what is strange in how it's handled. See, someone here finds this person dead and then he alerts all the officials in the towns surrounding this. Responsibilities assigned to the closest town to take care of this matter. And the senior officials and priests of that town shall take a heifer to a valley where there is running water, like a spring or something. The elders break the neck of the valuable community resource, and they wash their hands, and they make the pronouncement that they had nothing to do with the death of this person. And then they pray to the Lord, asking him to forgive the guilt as they requested of innocent blood. Now, if we were to leave the scenario right there and kind of go on, we might be asking some questions, such as, whose heifer was it to be used? And which valley are they to go into to bring that heifer there? What exactly is the nature of the running water? Is there a river? Is there a spring? Is there a waterfall? We don't know. And after the heifer was killed, how to dispose of it? Return it to the owner? Bury it right there where it was killed? What do we do with this? And even regarding the priests, what exactly was their job in this situation? See, it was the elders who washed their hands. It was the elders who made the uh, the proclamation that they were innocent. I mean, they didn't even offer a sacrifice. They didn't take a knife and take the blood. There was nothing there like that. So what were they doing there? A lot of unanswered questions of the Torah. The exact thing that we're supposed to be following, right? 
This, though, says a lot about the freedom that God's people have concerning Torah. Though there are definite boundaries, there is some latitude here, some wiggle room for performing the task. The Torah is not a step-by-step instruction manual where God demands a slavish lockstep into every situation. But there are some specifics here in this. So let's look at this. Some of the specifics are killing a heifer. It's a young cow before she is calved. This is a valuable animal. No one knows the potential she has for how many calves she's going to have eventually. But she is to die. The pronouncement of the innocence made by the elders. The presence of the priests. These things are important. And here's where we can mine some truth for today, for us. The point is how important God considers life. And that's the bottom line here. He considers life to be very important even in a fallen world. And so should we. There are many lessons here that we can learn about this. I can go all day, just this one. But let me just give you one. Life is most precious. Would you agree with that? People are not things that we throw away. In the community, Moses directed the people to treat the death of this apparent stranger with the utmost of dignity and respect. They and we feel it, don't we, when death happens? In Israel's case, the elders had to take the time to put to death a valuable resource in the community. It was a heifer. They went through the ritual of declaring their innocence regarding a dead man, this deceased image bearer of God. But this it was not enough, though, to merely declare their innocence, though. A person is dead, and he did not die by natural causes. And even though the elders did not contribute to his demise, they pleaded with the Lord that he would not lay sin upon them. It's important to note, though, that the forgiveness they sought was because they were God's redeemed people already. They had access to forgiveness by Yahweh because they were in covenant relationship with the Lord. They were walking in his ways, but a fellow imager of God was now dead. And so for us, I hope you can see it. For me, anyway, the application is obvious. Millions of unborn children in our day, whom we don't know, do we? They are people lying, as it were, in an open field. We all feel the immense loss, don't we? How valuable is each little person inside the womb? The elders in our country, as it were, have been working for a long time to bring the Supreme Court again to a moment of clarity. And now that they declared Roe to be dead, how we need to continue to press the issue, don't we? We need to get rid of abortion completely in our country, everywhere. And we need to, at the very least, vote pro-life Congress people in all areas and all offices in our country. And for us at Grace United, we can contribute as well of our time in our resources to places like, I don't know, the East End Pregnancy Center, right? Donna loves that. We're to speak with others and to others with clarity, with truth, with the facts, and not back down. Let the enemies of life say what they will. And may the Lord give us the courage to speak the truth because we love our neighbors, both born and unborn. Now, of course, the issue concerning Israel there in this in this passage 
was more than just an elder level, as it were. The priests were present as well to observe this, as it were, God giving approval of what was happening here. God's people were to plead over the loss of innocent life so that he would not lay guilt upon them. In our day, God should be judging us right now, but he has given us mercy. In our day, regarding this heinous crime against God's unborn imagers, millions who we don't know how we need to continue to pray that the Lord has mercy on us. Even if we have not contributed to the loss of life regarding abortion, we can still join others in our area of spiritual battle as we pray. And so what does Torah teach us about life in this scenario? His people are to respect life in the presence of the Lord. People are not things that we throw away. All of life is sacred to the creator. Death in the midst of our fallen world is to be treated with the utmost seriousness. Second scenario is one that we covered a couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, uh, Israel going to war. And it has to do with female POWs. When Israel went to battle and a soldier saw a beautiful girl among the captives, he was allowed to take her for his wife. But he must treat her humanely. He must allow her to grieve the loss of her family. He takes her into his home and he can't consummate the marriage for an entire month. And he provides for her all that she needs. Her head is to be shaved, all hair cut off, her nails to be cut, and she is to wear clothing suitable for mourning. And after a month of allowing her to grieve, then consummate the marriage. And at some point along the line, if the soldier no longer wants to stay married to this woman, she is free now to leave his house free and clear. She is a human being, now no longer a POW. She can live as a free person in Israel, even though she's a foreigner. And so the principle here is clear, I believe. We treat our enemies as imagers of God. Jesus says that we are to love our enemies, pray for them, meet their needs. And I said several weeks ago that as ambassadors of King Jesus, there are many pockets of resistance in his kingdom. And those pockets of resistance are our enemies. Spiritual giant, Francis Schaeffer, who was promoted to heaven decades ago, said some really good things in this regard. He said we're to be absolutely ruthless in exposing the error of these people, of these resistors against God's authority, all the while seeking to do them good and meeting their needs where possible. We absolutely obliterate their positions, but we love them. It ought to be going to stand for us to know the word of God and learning how to absolutely destroy the arguments of the enemies of King Jesus. And one person put it this way, we are to be tender warriors. Tender in the way we treat our fellow imagers of God as our equals. We seek to meet their needs. But as warriors, we go all out and destroy their positions. But we treat them as the, as the precious souls that they are. So what does Torah teach about living in a fallen world, confronting rebellious imagers of God? We speak the truth in love to fellow Christians. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us, speaking the truth in love. However, we speak the truth to the pagans because we love them. 
See the difference? Truth and love to Christians, but the truth because we love them to the pagans. There's a big difference between the two because they're not going to appreciate what we have to say and they're not going to think that we love them, but we speak the truth anyway. Many rebellious unsaved people will not appreciate our ministry. How many of us have been accosted because we dare to speak the truth to people? But no matter, we are to be faithful to the king regardless of how they treat us. We are the king's servants. We are the king's warriors. And we're looking for pockets of resistance against the king's authority. Scenario number three has to do with harmony in the home. And let's read verses 15 through 17. Deuteronomy 21. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, yet the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. How applicable is this, huh? This is great. <laughs> I don't know about you, but last time I checked, polygamy was not a thing in our culture. And so we might be thinking, how in the world can this scenario in the Torah help us understand that God is a superior way of life in any way, shape, or form? Since all scripture is given by inspiration of God, including this one. What's going on here? You know, one thing I appreciate about the Lord is how down-to-earth things are in his word. See, Yahweh, through Moses, dealt with polygamy because polygamy was part of their culture back in the day. See, remember the stories in Genesis. Remember Abraham and Sarah, Hagar? And then there was Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Zilpah and Bilhah. Four wives. What a household. 13 kids, 12 sons and a daughter. Now, a big problem that many have in our world in trying to understand God's word is that they are so good at superimposing their present reality upon what they read. What they and we need to do is to read it and understand it the way they understood it back in the day. And especially applies right here concerning polygamy. Polygamy was dealt with because polygamy was a common thing back then. We're not allowed to judge what we read in Scripture from our 21st century understanding. We can't read into Holy Scripture our own present circumstances. We just can't. Something else about marriage back then, which is far different than our day, seldom did people marry for love. It just wasn't the thing back then. In large measure, marriage was for building a legacy and for economics. Back in the day, two questions were often asked. First, what does the woman in her dowry and ability to produce children bring to the table? It's a business agreement here. Second, what can the man bring to the table in contribution toward building the clan? And though it played a little bit of a part, it was rare for romantic love to be the motive for marriage, again, back in the day. 
And so, really, prenuptial agreements and contracts were much more in line with ancient marriage customs than was romantic love. That's just the way it was. Far different than our day. So with that said, let's briefly look at this scenario and see what truth we can mine here. Two wives this husband has, and he prefers one wife over the other. Now, the text does lend itself to understanding love as one wife being more pleasing to the husband than the other one. Now, if you know the story, think Leah, who was not as attractive in Jacob's eyes as Rachel was. You know, Jacob wanted to be with Rachel far more than he wanted to be with Leah, who bore the firstborn. Leah did, yes. But in this scenario that we just read, who was born to whom and in what order? The less desirable wife bears the firstborn in the family. This means something. The firstborn son, regardless of who bears him, is to receive the inheritance of the firstborn, which is a double portion of the inheritance, twice as much as all the other siblings get. And throughout Israel's history, it was practiced as a custom, and now Moses is codifying it. This is the way it's supposed to be done from here on out. But you see the significance here. Again, we're talking economics. We're talking about building the clan, all that kind of stuff. Even if the less desirable wife bears the firstborn son, he becomes the one who is head of the family when he passes off the scene. Regardless of how he feels about things, if he wants to be faithful to the Lord, then he is going to need to be on good terms, firstborn son, and his mother. Dad is not allowed to play favorites when it comes to doling out the inheritance. There is a specific thing he has to follow if he's going to be faithful. And so the principle is clear. The Torah teaches that a marriage is based on the rock-solid foundation of covenant, not the mushy marshmallow of romantic love, otherwise known as being what? In love. See, when two people get married because they are in love, what's the danger? Falling out of love. And when this happens, how many people conclude, you know, I'm no longer in love, and so I've got a right to be in love. And so now I need to go and find somebody to be in love with. So what happens to the marriage covenant? Breaks. But Yahweh shows his faithfulness with his people by means of a covenant. Remember how God cut a covenant with Abraham. It was demonstrated by dividing animals and God passing through the bloody trench. As Christians, Paul said that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And Christ, the bridegroom, established a new covenant with his bride. How? By shedding his blood in the covenant. Jesus died to secure a marriage relationship to his bride. As Christians, we stand in the covenant Christ has made with us individually. As Christian husbands and wives, we stand in covenant relationship with one another. Paul said it well regarding how Christian husbands and wives are to live out their marriage commitment to one another. In that classic passage, Ephesians 5, 22-33. Paul to the Christians in Ephesus said that wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands as to the Lord. Not absolute submission, but as to the Lord. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Guys, how did Christ love the church? He died. See, you wives have it easy. We've got to die. We've got to die to ourselves. We have to die to our plans. We have to die to our agenda and our 
our ministry from that point on becomes our wives, our children. That's the ministry that God has called men to. See, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her in covenant. These are rock-solid commitments upon which to build a firm foundation, not mushy marshmallows uh, in the sentimental, romantic way. Love is a verb, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 13 style. The bottom line is this. When both husband and wife obey the Lord out of love for him, with the wife submitting herself to her husband as to the Lord, and the husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church, the chances for harmony in the home greatly improve, don't they? Now get a witness on that. The greater the harmony, the greater the chance the marriage will go the distance. And at the end of their lives together, whenever that is, both husband and wife will be able to tell one another, look at one another in the eye and say, we did it. We promised that we would stay together till death do us part. And by the Lord's grace, we were able to do that. That's how it should be, isn't it? The fourth scenario is a very unpleasant one, one concerning a rebellious son, and by implication, daughter as well. Verses 18 to 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. God says through Moses, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear, I guess. Right? So what do we do with this one? Hello? We can't even spank our kids anymore, right? And more importantly, what can Torah teach us about life with this rule? Simply put, this reminds Israel that evil resides in the human heart. So let's look at some details and be brave enough to mine some truth here. First, let me set your mind at ease, all right? I saw and heard this just very recently, as a matter of fact, and I read this too in preparation. There is no documentation anywhere to be found in any Israelite literature where a family actually carried this out to the letter. No one did this, in other words. But that does not mean that we can't learn from this. This is truth, is it not? Let's look at the scenario. How old was this kid in this scenario? He's old enough to party, old enough to live as a rebellious slug, and mom and dad headed up to here. Try as they might in every way they could, they could not get this kid in line. And the word discipline means to take action toward corrective punishment. This kid was off the rails, in other words. Now, Solomon had, to say, had something to say about these kinds of things, about the nature of children. Proverbs 22.15 says folly, literally arrested mental and spiritual maturity, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline removes it far from him. This is a principle, okay, because Proverbs are principles. They're religious maxims, wise sayings. It's a good rule of thumb, but it's not true in every case, in other words. The book of Proverbs as you read the book of Proverbs, it's a collection of wise statements. It's not ironclad promises from God. 
they're true in a lot of cases, but not in every case. And I can't tell you how many times over the years as a pastor, people come to me brokenhearted over the parent's failure to or to to see it lived out as far as Proverbs 22, 6 in their kids' lives. Proverbs 22, 6 says, and you know it, right? Tramp a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. Well, guess what happens to so many kids? Trained up in the way he should go. And when they get out there, they go everywhere but the ways of the Lord, right? They're living rebellious lives. Parents who come to me and they, and they, through their tears, they pour out their hearts and they say, I did everything I needed to do. But now my kid has gone wayward. What am I going to do about this? What did I do wrong? Is their heart cry. It's my failure because here's what the Bible promises. Well, again, what's Proverbs all about? These are, these are rules of thumb. These are not ironclad promises. But the answer simply this. That as parents, these broken-hearted parents, they did practically what every other parent would do and what they have done. They loved them, showed them a good and godly example, provided for them. In short, these broken-hearted parents gave everything to parents who have godly sons and daughters, what their parents have given them. And so what's the difference between parents who are doing everything right, have wayward kids, and parents who do everything right, have godly kids? What's the difference? It's the kid. See, every one of us is capable of having a stubborn and rebellious heart against authority. And to varying degrees, all of us do. It takes the power of God by his spirit to change us and overcome our stubbornness and rebellion. Thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. But back to verses 18 to 21 here. There are many sons and daughters with the free will combined with a sinful nature who become overly stubborn and rebellious in the extreme. Here, mom and dad can't handle him or her in this scenario what to do. Mom and dad are to turn their precious son or daughter, maybe in air quotes, precious son or daughter, over to the elders, and they're to stone the kid until the kid dies. God's assessment of this person and the influence he can have over his peers is evil and must be dealt with. But why so harshly? Why the harsh commandment here? In short, God is the fountainhead of all authority. When God's people display an ongoing lifestyle of rebellion against human authority, it is a personal affront to God himself. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminds people who Yahweh is and how he delivered them out of Egypt and how he interacted with them on Mount Sinai. He said this, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you, correct you, bring you in line. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard the words out of the midst of the fire. God's purpose for his interaction with his people was he might give them loving correction to bring his people in line with his ways. But when God's people thumb their noses at his authority, there are many pairs of eyes watching this take place. Pairs of eyes in the heavens, pairs of eyes on earth. The spiritual rebellious beings, they're watching to see if God is going to do something about this rebellion. They think, well, maybe if these guys can get away with it, maybe we can too. Same way with humans. And those also 
who are looking at this, who are submissive to the will and the Lord's ways, they're saying with horror, how could these people do this? But the truth is twofold. When it's all said and done, all rebellion will be taken care of forever. And second, rebellion against authority is contagious. Think the riots last summer. BLM, Antifa, all these kinds of things. And what makes it worse is when it gets fomented by the media. They call them peaceful protests. And let's not forget what the agenda was. Defund the police. That's the Marxist garbage that's going on. Proverbs 22 tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? As a culture, part of a heart so desperately sick is indeed abortion. Now, Friday, July 24th was a monumental day, wasn't it? Where were you when you heard the announcement? Great. We'll never forget this. As a nation, we bask in the Supreme Court's moment of clarity. Almost 50 years ago, the third branch of our government, quote, found in the penumbras of the Constitution a so-called right for people to do irreparable harm to our most vulnerable, our unborn children. Almost half a century has come and gone, but because of the evil so many people have and they're greedy to thumb their nose at God, now we have 64 million of our most vulnerable citizens perished. But God's people have known all along what his will is concerning abortion. A document was discovered in the 1800s called the Didache. That's how you pronounce it, Didache. And through a lot of a lot of scholarly blood, sweat, and tears, it was determined that the Didache was actually written, not in the 1800s, but very, very early in the range between the middle of the first century and the beginning of the second century. It is that old. The Didache was, in essence, a training manual of sorts written to people who were trying to check out what this thing called Christianity is all about. It was training people. Okay, you want to know what you're getting into here? We're now going to train you. The Didache contains very pointed words as to what someone who would call himself or herself a Christian was to believe and to do. And here's what the Didache says about abortion and even infanticide. You shall not kill a child in the womb. And you shall not expose infants. That's infanticide. God's people, from the get-go, knew that abortion is wrong. It is murder. Now, I spent a little time here to press home the vital importance of what Christians have always believed about abortion. Always. We continually hear that abortion is strictly a person's private matter. Even among Christians, we tell one another that Jesus would be okay with his disciples advocating killing of unborn children. How many people in the church do that and say that and they advocate for this? This, my brothers and sisters, is absolutely not so. Let me just just, just remind you of what I just told you to equip you to counter the argument that the Lord is okay with this. He's not okay with this. In short, the earliest Christians believed that abortion was a heinous sin. It is premeditated murder. It always has been and it always will be. But praise God for his forgiveness in Christ. Praise God. As Christians, we not only experience, but we can share the great news. Because of Christ's sacrifice, 
God can and he does forgive any and all sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us this. When we repent, we confess, he forgives. It's as simple as that, based upon what Christ has done for us. We can be free of the guilt, free of the shame. And whoever has been involved in abortion, whoever has, can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it. And God says, I know. And he forgives. He washes it away. Isn't it amazing? That's the good news we can share with every person out there. Every person. The teaching of Torah regarding this matter of authority is a serious issue. But imagine, if you will, all of God's people living under the chastening and purifying hand of God's discipline. Because is that not what God's purpose for our, for our lives is? That he might discipline us, help us to share his holiness. And that's what Hebrews 12, verses 10, 11 reminds us of. For the moment, he says, all discipline is unpleasant, but later it yields a piece of fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. Now, the last scenario is Torah's teaching about life to Israel and to us is found in verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, he is to be put on a tree. You're to hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. In short, the Lord believes in capital punishment. He gave that as a commandment to us. It's no surprise there. In these verses, though, we see the reason why. It's a deterrent for future crimes. Moses tells the people that a person who is executed, capital crime, is to be displayed after he dies for the entire world to see, hanged up on a tree as a deterrent. So basically, he's making an object lesson. Don't go there. Don't do something that's worthy of capital death. But there's a limit to that, just that day only. And so God gives us two truths. First, the Lord underscores his seriousness of a capital crime. Hanging the body from a tree is to serve as a warning. And second, Paul quotes this very passage in relationship to Christ and his sacrifice for us. Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21 here. This powerful image of Christ may have lost its potency for some of us who read the Bible carefully. See, we get caught up in the wording with this. Because Paul uses this verse, but we say, how can that be? Because Christ didn't get hung on a tree. He died on the cross. He was crucified. So how can this be? Is Paul trying to pull a fast one on his hair? Is he trying to force feed Christ into this passage? I say absolutely not. Let me quote author Peter Craigie who wrote about this very thing. And I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. So please hang on to this, because this is, this is good stuff. This is really good stuff. Craigie writes, The dead person's body was not cursed because it was hanging on a tree. The body was hanging on a tree because God cursed it. He was already cursed. The body was not cursed by God because it was dead, because everybody dies, but it was cursed because of the reason for the death. Make sense? In other words, the body was hung up and God cursed him because what he did was so heinous. Craigie continues. 
To break the law of God and live as though he does not matter is to curse God. And he who cursed God would be cursed by God. To break the law of God and die was to die the worst possible kind of death. Now, why is that so? Craigie says this in my paraphrase. The person who dies because God cursed him means this. He is absolutely and completely separated from God's people, from the community. Craigie goes on to say, Paul's use of this verse is very forceful. Christ took upon himself the curse of the law. And what is the curse of the law? Death, physical death. And this means he died redeeming us from the curse of the law. In other words, he died in our place so we wouldn't have to die. The way he died, hanging on a tree, symbolized in a dramatic fashion what his death was all about. Because Christ's death separated him from the family of God, from the community, it made it possible for us to come into the community because he took the the curse away from us and he opened up the door that was previously barred to us. I know that's a mouthful, but let me see if I can summarize. Because Christ hung on a tree, he took upon himself the curse that was upon us. He took it from us because we broke the law of God. Christ's death took our curse, and to carry it further, in his resurrection, he left the curse behind in the tomb forever. For all of us in Christ, there is now no more curse. We're now in the family through Christ. The Torah is the way of life, but it is not the way of life in and of itself. Remember when Israel received the Torah, it was only after God redeemed them from Egypt by a mighty hand. He said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. Therefore, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on with the rest of the Ten Commandments. God was in a living relationship with them before he gave them the Ten Commandments. And Jesus came and said to them, to the apostles and to us by extension, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, observe all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. Are we not as Christ's disciples to teach the ways of the Lord to all nations? The teaching of God's ways enables us to understand what true life really is. Is this not what our Lord meant when he prayed to the Father? And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. May the Lord empower us to really understand and to know the ways of Torah, for it is the Torah that testifies of Jesus. May we serve him gladly because he is King of Kings, because he is Lord of Lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are amazed at who you are. What you've given us, the, the, the wisdom that has come from you. You allowed it to be accurately transmitted onto paper, onto parchment, and now sometimes even onto phones and pixels and things. But Lord, your wisdom is amazing. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit who helps us to not only understand it, but also to carry it out. And I pray, Lord, that today that you'd help us to much more appreciate what you have told us in your word, Old Testament and New Testament. Lord, it all ties together. We thank you 
And Lord Jesus, we know that when you came, you came to show us the way of the Father, and you told us, if we love you, we will keep your commandments. You didn't tell us anything unusual, anything different, anything unique. You told us what has always been. You communicated to us the ancient ways. So help us, Lord, to live those ancient ways out of love for you because you've saved us because you love us first. Thank you, Lord, now for this time. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us in our giving, help us, Lord, in our singing, help us, Lord, to do these acts of worship because you alone are worthy in Jesus' name.